Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers for DC. Welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudharman, uh, and we're so happy to be able to invite back into the Echo Chamber studio today, Sally Costerton. Sally, welcome. Thank you, Arun. Nice to see you again. It's, um, it's such great news to have you here because you've been elusive. You've been, <laughs> you've been difficult to track down. I think it's been over a year since yes. we last did a podcast with you. I think so, yes. So yes. where have you been? What's been going on? <laughs> well, um, I've been doing a lot of traveling um, mm-hmm. in my work with ICANN, which has taken me literally all around the world. Big changes there. Um, and uh, they just announced a new CEO yesterday, so that's kept me very busy. Oh, wow. Um, you seem so relaxed, despite a CEO announcement. Uh, it, it's, it's Wednesday. Right, OK. Yeah. <laughs> Monday, not so much. Yeah, um, sure. And that's been a, that's a, been long expected, but it's a, always a big thing to do, uh, particularly such a high-profile organisation. Um, and uh, I've just done a trip to Asia to uh, prepare for that, and although, mm. in fact, he's a Swede. Um, it'd be very interesting to see a European running ICANN for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been uh, very busy with uh, MHP, uh, whereas you probably know I'm that's chairman. That's right, I've heard, yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, that's been great. It's completely different. It's so nice to sort of keep a hand in the agency world. Yeah. Um, and the team there is doing really well. Um, and it's uh, just celebrated its fifth birthday. So as I uh, was saying to somebody earlier on today, it's uh, very unusual because it's a young, big agency. To have 160 people when you're only five years old is unusual. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's the product of a three-way merger. So yeah, it's, been, uh, was, it's been fascinating. That was always fun. Three-way mergers, I think, are probably <laughs> the best kind of mergers. Well, they add extra layers of challenge, for sure. Um, but uh, so, so, yeah, it keeps me, keeps me off the streets, definitely. <laughs> and is this you slowly moving back towards the big agency world? <laughs> um I'm really lucky because I can do lots of different things. And mm-hmm. i got to say, having spent now nearly four years building that business, I also do quite a lot of coaching, as I think, you know, some writing. Yeah. I won't be challenging you anytime soon, don't worry. Um, oh, I don't know. It's You're so to. great. <laughs> it's just a great privilege. I mean, it genuinely is a great privilege to be able to do, to do different things. And um, that's a very hard habit to break now. Mm. Um, I'm very fortunate. So long may yeah. it continue. Well, it's good. Well, it's good to hear you're enjoying stuff. We've got a few things to discuss today. Um, let's start, shall we, with a, a pretty captivating story from, um, I think, just over the weekend, the last few days. Uh, the, 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 uh, the back and forth, let's say, between FT columnist Lucy Kelloway and... HP Enterprise, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, as it's now known, Chief Marketing and Communications Officer Henry Gomez. So this was fun. Uh, I think, well, I think I suspect you also uh, perhaps saw the humor in it. Uh, apparently, the people in at HP less so. But just to recap, in case anyone's been under a rock, uh, Lucy, as she often does in her columns, quite uh, humorously skewered. HP Enterprise Chief Executive Meg Whitman uh, about something she said in Davos. And she did this as part of a story where she was poking fun at people for what they said at Davos, at CEOs in particular. And having been to Davos, I would only add that uh, that's a little bit like shooting fish in a barrel. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Meg Whitman's nonsense Davos soundbite was, you can always go faster than you think you can. 
uh, Kellaway, um, I think, quite accurately pointed out that actually you can't. And sometimes you can fall flat on your face. And she also made... Uh, she also brought up HP's acquisition of autonomy and some of the some of the moves it's made. Now, in in normal circumstances, I suspect you know a company reading this, like all of the other CEOs uh, who were who were quoted, and that article would probably choose to let sleeping dogs lie. Uh, but in this case, HP decided to uh, to respond uh, via an email to Lucy, which Lucy made public in her follow up, which is. Uh, Always fun, and she actually said that she did it for, for her reader's benefit, so thank you, Lucy. Um, and I, I guess what was interesting in, in the, uh, the response from, from Henry Gomez to, uh, to Lucy Kellaway was, uh, was one line in particular where, um, where he said that FT management should consider the impact of unacceptable biases on its relationships with advertisers. Uh, and there was plenty of other stuff. I mean, you can all find the email. There's plenty of other stuff about how Meg's comment uh, was uh, was not nonsense, uh, was a, was uh, was made complete sense. Lucy mischaracterized it, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, Sally, your take was this? Uh, did you feel that this was a, a a smart move by HP to come back at Lucy like this? I mean, we live in an era where. You know, we are seeing more and more companies come back at journalists. Well, it's very entertaining. Um, <laughs> so thank you to all concerned. And actually, Lucy said in her in her Sunday art piece mm -hmm. that she felt that she was doing this, as you say, for the good of her readers and that actually the fact that businesses did not react to things was not necessarily a good development. That yeah, She thought that passive point. aggression, which essentially was what she interpreted as the silence or the mm -hmm. lack of response, was not necessarily healthy. So she probably knew exactly what she was doing. Yeah. So that's the first thing I said. I mean, Lucy also, I mean, I read Lucy every week. Mm -hmm. I have done for mm -hmm. years. Yeah, me too. Um, even when I used to find reading the rest of the FT painful and perhaps mm -hmm. a tad dull, I would always read her columns. Mm -hmm. And she is absolutely clearly um, clear about her agenda. Mm -hmm. She has even written books about, I can't remember, she has a website, I think, doesn't she, about business yeah, kind of speak. Yeah, didn't she write that book about... Um you know, as an executive who comes up with this, like, creovation. Yes. That's or right, something. she did, yes. yes. So, so she's long been known as a debunker mm -hmm. of corporate speak mm. of various different types and jargon. And she most recently did this thing where she had a go at one of PR firm, actually, financial PR firm, for yeah. talking about instinctive. That, yes, it was to do with, you know, some sort of values and missions. And she, so she, mm -hmm. she's very much an established person who, who writes from this angle. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, one should, if I'd seen her write that analysis of the Davos uh, commentary, to me that was entirely in keeping with Lucy's normal editorial position. So there was nothing unusual. There was nothing particularly yeah. picking on HP. Right. And Meg got off. Meg got know, off quite easier, lightly. Actually, lightly, the CEO yeah. of PayPal was like <laughs> even, even more uh, viscerally attacked. Right. And she does it from a... I mean, look, she writes for the FT, and my sense as a reader of hers for a long time is that, I mean, the FT is basically on the side of business. I mean, mm. I'm sure it wouldn't come out and say that explicitly, but it is really. Mm -hmm. 
And and so I think even though she she can be a tough critic sometimes, she keeps her criticism to quite a narrow sphere. Yeah, she's she's always quick to put her self-deprecation. You know herself. She wrote mm-hmm. a very funny article recently about how she'd been about why wasn't humour more popular in the workplace these days, and you know how many pranks had been played on her when she was a rookie journalist. So she's not frightened of putting herself in the in the limelight. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think she comes from a position of basically, as it were, being on the side of business. And 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 so if I'd been at HP, would I have been surprised to see this article in her column? No. Mm-hmm. Now that's one side of it. That said. Um, I don't, I should, as a declaration, I don't know Henry Gomez. To the mm. best of my knowledge, we've never met. He's never been a client of mine. So I, really? I have, don't think so. Well, you've not done well to, my, to not have HP well, as a client. We did have HP as a client, H&K. So right. it is quite possible that he was an H&K client. Uh, this might, I think you had them before, because he came with Meg. Yes, HP. well, that's what yeah. I was just going to say, actually. Mm. So when I got, sort of had a quick look at his background, um, he's obviously worked with Meg for a long time. Oh, yeah. He was with yeah. Meg at eBay. Yeah. And I can understand there are certain kinds of relationships between heads of corporate communications and their CEOs. And actually, I've seen this a lot stateside in a way sometimes more than in this country, mm-hmm. where that bond is deep and long-lasting and very personal and, mm. and protective, and I think that is it. Uh, that is quite. I'm not saying it is in their case. I'm just making an observation. Mm. They've obviously worked together for a long time. He was involved in her political campaign as well as mm. when she was at eBay and now and now in this role. Yep. So it, it doesn't surprise me that somebody in that role would feel defensive, and, mm. and of her. But of course, you know what I'm going to say. You know, really, what of course surprises me as a Brit, particularly, is that is, is that that defensiveness would materialise in terms of this sort of attack, mm. particularly in writing. And I think, you know, if Henry, you know, if anybody feels that their CEO is being maligned by a journalist, and you listen, you know, you've been a very successful journalist for a long time, you know how this works. It would not be unusual to get a call from a somebody, a head of comms or a Henry, and say, listen, you know what, actually. That, that wasn't great. It wasn't helpful. Can we meet? Can we talk? Can we make sure that actually there's nothing else going on here? That's pretty normal. Yeah. That's the lunch. Very, the lunch. She <laughs> does talk about that in yeah. her article. She says she's eaten many, what was it, apologetic lunches. Yeah. But the advantage about that is that if there is a wider agenda, that the, 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 the people involved can meet and can talk and can build a relationship, which ultimately is what this is all about. Mm. Um, if you go into writing, that's obviously more aggressive but I think the real issue here was the sort of failed threat. And, yeah. and that is something I haven't seen for a very long time. Yeah. And way back when, I mean, and I'm really, really talking way back when, 10, 15 years ago, maybe more, mm-hmm. there was often, you know, this suggestion that brands would get more press coverage in Paper A or television channel B mm-hmm. because they spent a lot of money above the line. Mm. But rightly... Um, of course, PR people hated that because mm. it implied that their work was not real, that yeah. it didn't have real value in its own merits. Right. Yeah, sure. And frankly, the t- of course, the media owners hated it because they mm-hmm. didn't want to be implying that their coverage was biased. Mm. So I, I was really surprised to see that uh, in 2016. Too. Yeah, I mean, and I was It didn't too. add anything. It detracted from it. Yeah, I mean, even in my... I mean, this is a whole other conversation, I think, but even in my own kind of media world, I think... The last time someone threatened to pull advertising was, I can remember it because it happened so rarely. It was 2010, an agency had. And, you know, that's the, you know, it's never, never even come up. Yeah. 
I mean, well, I suppose one of the other issues is no one really advertises anymore. But that's a different story <laughs> <laughs> altogether. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was strange. And then, and what I shouldn't, what I, one of the things I left out when I was describing this whole brouhaha is, uh, you know, there was a comeback to the comeback. So HP came back after Lucy's second column via um, SVP of PR Howard Claybo and. Um, and actually defended uh, Henry's email again and uh, said that no reporter or news media outlet should be above hearing honest feedback from readers or advertisers. And I wonder what your take is on that. You know, mystifying, honestly. Mm. I don't. See, let okay. me put it this way. I don't see how it helps HP. Mm. And if you are in that, if you are working for any organisation, and I, I feel this very much work, working with ICANN, I mean, I've seen very clearly there that, you know, there will be some people, journalists, bloggers, opinion formers, who take often extremely aggressive positions against high-profile CEOs and leaders. Mm. And as matter how much you engage with them and how much you try to have the lunch and how much you try to... Sometimes it, it doesn't make any difference. No, because They're that's They're just going to go after you because yeah, that's, that's their stick. Mm -hmm. And they may have many followers and, you know, they may... And, and, but we, we have a free press. Mm. We, share, we cherish it. It's in the American Constitution, mm. you know. So particularly from a, from a US base, I, I can understand why they're championing the concept of a free speech because I think it's very, mm -hmm. it's very close to the, to the heart. Perhaps it is more than we would say here. But what I don't understand is how is this process that they've engaged in improving HP's brand reputation or relationship with its stakeholders? I mean, I'm sure they must have an answer to that, but I don't know what mm. it is. It's not immediately obvious to me. Yeah. I mean, if, if anything, it improves perhaps the HP's communications department's relationship with their CEO. Yes. And I'm sure, you know, that I understand that. I understand mm. that. I think it can be extremely difficult, and I've experienced this firsthand, if your CEO is being viscerally attacked or very, you feel very unfairly represented mm -hmm. in a very public environment such as the FT, you know, there can be a real bunker mentality that sets in inside that organization in the, around the top table. Yeah. Put it right. Make everybody understand oh, yeah. that's and not right. And at HP, right. you can imagine that because yeah. they've really been through it. They really know, have they, been through they, it. So I, have, I genuinely have a great deal of sympathy for that because I, mm. I really do know what that feels like. But this seems like the least of their worries. You know, it was pick, a throwaway comment. Pick your battles. Mm. You know, stay on the moral high ground. It's like don't get involved in stuff you can't change. I mean, this is the job, certainly in my experience, it being in this role, mm. It, part of your part of my perception of my job is to help to advise a CEO and a leadership team when you just leave it alone. Yeah, they might not agree with you. Yeah, <laughs> but sometimes you have to be quite strong and say, "Look, what are you going to gain from having this argument?" I mean, in your experience, I mean, to me, look, reading Lucy, you know Lucy, you know what she's going to do. This is just a bit of fun. You can tell yes. actually yes. Um, that she's written it um, probably in in the kind of knowledge that. Um, she does this thing all the time and, oh. and doesn't get oh. much of a comeback. I mean, not not, not to say that, it, it, that any kind of comeback would alter the way she writes. But in your experience, do you find CEOs, when they read, when they find themselves the target of these kinds of, of, of attacks, no matter how lighthearted they are, do they still take them seriously? Does it still affect them? It can do. Mm -hmm. I think it depends on two things in my experience. One is how experienced the CEO is. 
mm. and how experienced they are. And it depends what they're CEO of. Mm. Because right. if you're CEO of something very high profile and very controversial, or you're a leader of, you know, uh, you don't have to just be a CEO. I mean, you might be, you know, a regulator. You might be somebody in a very high profile role. You get used to it. Mm. And you develop a thick skin and you learn very early on which battles you're going to fight. Yeah. And in in my experience, the partnership between that CEO and that head of corporate communications is forged in making the decision about that, mm. you know. And quite often, the battles you're trying to fight are not in the media. They mm-hmm. will be with other, kind, um, other kinds of issues and other kinds of stakeholders. And you want the media to give you a good, fair hearing, but you recognise because of the nature of the organisation you run that's not always going to be the case, and you mm. have to have a you have to have a longer term strategy. So, if they're experienced, and in particular if they're experienced running high profile, controversial organisations, they will develop a thicker skin. If they're new to a role, if they are running a very you know nice, easy, uncontroversial type of organisation where yeah. it's very rare to see public criticism, mm-hmm. one or both of those, then they they can be very sensitive to it. Yeah. You might let me put yourself in their shoes. It's not nice when people no, criticize no, you. No, absolutely not. Yeah. And to to the outside world, the CEO is is not supposed to have feelings. Yeah. It's supposed to be just the corporate leader, and the, they get paid a lot of money, and you know they get all these great perks, and they go to places like Davos, and why that they should be part of their job, mm. and, and they know it's part of their job, but that doesn't mean that sometimes it isn't very unpleasant. Mm. None of us yeah. like to be criticized, particularly in public. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe your kids read it and say, why are these people being so so mean about you? Mm. And they have to have the presence of mind to say, look, it's just noise in the system. Yeah. Whatever. We used to say, we used to have an expression, I don't know if it's probably not relevant anymore, we used to say fish and chip paper. Mm. You know, it's tomorrow's, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It'll pass. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's it's not, we shouldn't, we shouldn't assume that it hasn't been a difficult process for HP to come to that. I just think that I wouldn't have made the decision they made, but I'm not re- I'm not advising them. Mm. I mean, it sounds like of any CEO, Meg Whitman is as likely as anyone to have developed a pretty tough hide. I would have given everything so. HP's been through, um, which is and another reason why it surprises me. Her political career as well. How much of this do you think was down to uh, cultural misunderstandings? It kind of reminded me of the. Uh, of the uh, George, is it George Bernard Shaw quote? You know, the US and the and the UK is two countries separated by yeah. a common language. I mean, it, it did it did feel like we had two different um, approaches at play here. Yes, I mean, I, one of the things that I was very struck by when I was first working in technology PR, probably now getting up for twenty years ago, mm. was when we would have VPs and presidents and CEOs coming over to the UK to meet British journalists. They were really taken aback by the fact that they didn't feel that British journalists were deferential to them. Mm -hmm. And when you see the little pen portraits that you see in the Wall Street Journal and and that kind of what the the, the kind Mm -hmm. of dynamic, this was pre-Fox News in this sort of environment. But typically, and I'm horribly generalizing to make a point, there is more deference in my experience to business and business leaders in the U.S. media than there is in the U.K. I don't Mm. think that's an unfair it's not a controversial view, necessarily. It's not a controversial yeah. view. I think a lot of people would agree with me. And mm-hmm. certainly that's been my experience working on both sides of the, with both sides of the, the Atlantic on, on, on those issues, and particularly in this sector, because, of course, the tech sector, where Meg is and has been for a very long time, um, has mm. been the darling of the, of the global media, let alone yeah. the U.S. media. And 
I guess they're not used to, you know, British people kind of calling them out. Mm. It's not it's not the day job. Mm. And so consequently, but a British CEO or, or even a European CEO would be much more kind of like, oh, well, you know, <laughs> it's just the way it is. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> more used to it. Mm. Perhaps, perhaps. But in, on the other hand, in these days of social media where so much opinion is generated by readers and users and there's there's much less, mm. uh, there's much more commentary coming directly to companies. I wonder how true that still is. Yeah. What's also interesting here is that they're really coming back at Lucy for an opinion. I mean, I suppose if you're going to pick a fight, it makes more sense to... to Focus on when things are factually wrong. Yeah, I mean, look, at the bottom line, I, I don't understand this. Mm. I mean, uh, it just doesn't make sense to me, particularly. Mm. But, you know, I, I only say it with a caveat of not being on the inside of the organisation. I just think, you know, what is it they say? Nobody ever understands somebody else's marriage. Um, and I do think there's a bit of that. I think we do tend to be very judgmental. We assume we know, we assume we understand. But... Yeah, why would you pick a fight in that way? It doesn't yeah. make sense to me. Okay. Well, when HP email us, I'm just going to say this was all your idea. So <laughs> Thanks for you that. In advance. <laughs> um, so let's move on. We've done HP. Let's let's move on to um, a story we looked at towards the end of last year, in fact, in which you commented and which proved very popular. It is the extremely glamorous world of procurement in which you are now a, a, apparently a de facto <laughs> specialist. You get you get all the best jobs, clearly, Sally. But with this, this particular story um, looked at how PepsiCo was doing away with its marketing procurement department, a development which I suspect brought um, a huge amount of, um, of joy and pleasure and gladdened the hearts of agency folk everywhere because if there's one bugbear that you just can't get away from in the agency world, it is dealing with procurement. Uh, PepsiCo decided they were going to instead give brand managers, I think, more leeway to manage procurement themselves, um, which seemed like a pretty sensible move. Um, Why do you think, firstly, PepsiCo or any big company might decide to, to eliminate their marketing procurement department? Um, presumably because they feel they don't need it anymore. I mean, that sounds obvious. Mm-hmm. I suppose the real question is why might they not need it anymore? Yeah, so why did they need yeah, it in the I first mean, it's place? Yeah, I just thinking about it. Well, why they needed it in the first place, I think, is because uh, as uh, spends grew mm-hmm. between brands and marketing services agencies along as, as a category, mm. um, which it has enormously in the last sort of 15 years or so, um, it becomes much more material to an organisation and they want to procure it in the same way that they procure everything else they, they buy at scale. They spend a lot of money on, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's ingredients or silicon or whatever it might be. Um, so I think we must have got to a stage as an industry where we kind of got to a certain scale and we became, we, we, you know, we became, uh, we had yeah. our heads above the parapet. So I think that's why it started. Um why it might be stopping or why this they might have made this decision is, I think, I don't know the specifics of the PepsiCo decision itself, but my sense is that they will feel 
that it costs more than it generates. Obviously, if you're going to run a procurement department, you have to pay people. You have to have people on board that in the house that are going to do the work. Mm. It's not free. Right. And So they put their procurement department through procurement, Well, they might have done, mightn't they, Erin? That's an interesting thought. Yes, perhaps they did. Perhaps they had an RFP. Yeah. Um, but I think one thing that immediately sprung to mind to me was... Um, you know, when when I mean, I've been through many times through procurement mm-hmm. um, uh, in my in my uh, career, um, and typically they are looking to um, to do two things really. Mm-hmm. They're looking to buy at the most cost effective rate, and as and that was really all it was to begin with. It was literally just used as a negotiating tool, mm. which I think Jim Donaldson talks about in your article. He did, yeah, uh, and, and it yeah. was very much about that. You know, yeah. I want to buy the best I can for the cheapest possible rate in the market, mm. and that was why they, in the early days, they often used really weird things like reverse auctions. I mean, I remember the early doing, days. I think they're still they're well, still using. I can remember the first auctions. one I ever got involved in, which mm. was for a um, handset manufacturer, a tele- mm. mobile handset manufacturer. I mean, it was really going back a while now. Yeah. 13, 14 years, and and we had to, and, and and they used exactly the same structure that they did for the people that they were buying silicon from, silicon chips, <laughs> and it didn't matter how many times we went going, this not really the yeah. same thing, yeah. um, but it was all about how can I, how can I buy the best for the least, mm. and then as time wore on, procurement departments, particularly of big organisations, started to focus also on ROI, mm-hmm. you know, how are we measuring the return that we're getting for this spend, so it's the other side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly on the, the – and I think there's a couple of factors. One is that increasingly, commonly, almost almost all the time now, that the seat, the seat on the client side, the buyers, are now have agency experience. It's rare now to come yeah. across a, mm. a corporate comms team or a band manager who hasn't been on the agency side. So they, they absolutely understand how agencies make money. So they don't need an intermediary to tell them – how to, in a way, procure a deal, as in, you know, price a deal well. They know how it works. And once they've chosen the agency that they want, they're more than capable, in my experience, of having a commercial negotiation to make sure that they get the best price for the work they want. Hmm. But typically, your in-house client never liked having the procurement people involved either, because that would maybe push them to a supplier that didn't they didn't mm. feel was the best that they could choose. Mm. So that's the first reason. I think there's much more experience on the in-house side than there was 15 years ago mm. of how agencies work and how they how they make their profits and therefore how that could be deconstructed in a way that, that works for the client. The other thing that's different is that um, campaigns are so much more measurable. Mm. Uh, so uh, if you look at the people that use procurement heavily, you'll be talking about large consumer brands, large technology brands, large healthcare brands. Those are the ones I've predominantly seen them being used for, mm-hmm. and there may be others. Those are campaigns that are highly driven in, in the public space, social media, very relatively easy to see kind of what bang you're getting for your buck. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's another factor. Hmm. Interesting. Um so for someone who works on the, on the client side I'm, now, I'm kind of interested in your view because there was this – I would come across this attitude amongst uh, PR firms uh, probably more recently that um, actually, you know, procurement is a good thing and it's improved their processes and services. And, and, and I always found that this was maybe um, the result – I mean, I always wondered whether this was the result of PR firms being pressured – into kind of ending up with a positive view or something they're going to have to deal with. Um, do you think that's unfair? Do you actually think procurement does help agencies in any way? 
Well, I think it personally, I think it comes from, you know, look, we've got to do this anyway, so let's make the best of it. And right. I definitely would say that from my own experience of being on the agency side. Yeah. Actually, um, when I was at Hill & Knowlton, um, they, they were very good at de- dealing with this. Mm. Hill & Knowlton made the investment quite early on in a full-time dedicated person who did nothing else. Mm. And he is a particularly able guy. And he wasn't a PR person, so he didn't have that kind of emotional baggage that came with sort of thoroughly objecting to the idea that somebody might want to pay less for their brilliance than they felt it was worth, mm-hmm. which is part of the problem. Yeah. And why intermediaries started getting involved in the first place. And I think I can certainly say in that example that it was inevitable that we were going to have to deal with it. That's why they created the role. Mm. He was and still is, I and mean, he's still there, still doing the same role, an extremely sophisticated um, procurement guy and what he did very effectively was was help the agency realize you know, how it could maximize this how it could work on it to develop things like uh, rate cards um, think much more broadly about how to negotiate well more rounded commercial deals how to build stronger partnerships with clients so for them anyway it wasn't all downside but they had made a very significant decision to invest in that capability i don't know if that's common mm. practice I haven't come across it, particularly in many agencies. It may be a spreading thing. Mm. I think probably the bigger agencies. Yeah. And you actually mentioned that procurement had worked to the benefit of of big agencies in some cases. It's allowed them to um, justify their big networks Mm. in some cases. Um, But you also quite memorably described working on some of these um, procurement-focused accounts as like doing a tour in Helmand, <laughs> which to anyone who's not aware is, I assume, Helmand province yes. in Afghanistan. You said it was like going to war, Sally. Uh, yes, I did a bit. I think what I meant was it was, it was rather dramatic. Um, and I should have known, known you better than to know. Of course, you would know. I'm teasing. It, it was seen as a hardship posting. That was mm. what I meant. Right. Um, so I was probably being dramatic for the sake of it. Uh, oh, no, no, no we liked it. It. But, it was great. <laughs> But it wasn't seen like that by everybody. Um, but there was certainly that the, this is a bit of an unspoken, you know, this is, a, this is the thing that people don't like talking about. But everybody mm-hmm. inside the system knows it's an issue inside the agency system. Because if you have very highly procured rates that have been negotiated on a big global contract, mm-hmm. then then in multiple offices, it's good in the way that there's a guaranteed income coming in that's going to feed a lot of mouths in a lot of countries. Mm. And if you've got a big network, you need those things. You need to know that you can keep the lights on and that you can pay the wage bill. And for a lot of people working in some of those other countries, it's attractive. You know, they're getting business from the parent. It's kind of why they might sell their business to Mm -hmm. a network. One of the reasons why they might. Sure. The downside is they're going to have to work on that business at very, very low rates sometimes or lower than they would like. So it's an opportunity cost. Mm -hmm. Now, if they really want to do that business and it's serving their business and they're winning lots of awards and the people that work on their team have great relationship with the client and love it, that's all good. Mm. But sometimes, but it, but whether they do or whether it doesn't make a difference, they've still got to do the work. Yeah. Right. And when it's not so much like that, and they might prefer to go after more profitable business in their local market, they can't necessarily mm-hmm. because that client has got to take precedence because that is the nature of the negotiation. Mm. Now, if agencies, big networks, ran themselves on single global P&Ls, where all the bonuses and everything were just linked to one global target, that wouldn't matter, but they don't. Right. They typically 
run, as you know very yeah. well, agent, big global agencies are run with a series of national mm-hmm. P&Ls. And yes, some of the bonuses will accrue at the top level for the most senior people. But if that local country isn't hitting its number, that puts pressure on all the staff in that local yeah. office. And, and that's where the do, tension is. Right. And so, so they end up having basically having to work on an account that isn't necessarily as profitable as other yeah. work they could be doing. Absolutely. And that can build resentment and hence the point about the hardship yeah. posting. And, and often it's not, you know, you often hear, well, why do agencies take work? And, and you often hear reasons, um, you know, fun, fame, fortune. Uh, you need to often provide that to oh. your staff. You need to provide you accounts that they enjoy working on. And often these yeah. highly procured accounts are not necessarily the most fun to work on. It varies. I mean, you mm. can't generalise. Um, okay. I don't think there's a link between procurement and fun. Um, are you sure? Well, I don't, are you sure? Could I be quoted on that? Um, no, I mean, I've, I've known some very entertaining procurement people. I mean, they're right. not—they're perfectly capable of, uh, of, of having fun. And some of those clients can, can, be, can be great fun. Uh, yeah. Some of those relationships can be amazing. And I think I said when I uh, was quoted in your article, the other side of this coin is that for the, the sort of the opposite of the hardship posting is for many people, they will see this as a great opportunity to build their CV and their experience because suddenly they're working. They may have been in quite a small team in perhaps quite a small market, mm-hmm. not dealing with global brands. And yeah. all of a sudden they have this opportunity to work on, you know, an mm. HP like our previous conversation or, you know, a, um, uh, a PepsiCo or, 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 or a Microsoft or something yeah. like this. GSK. And mm. smart people mm. will make the most of that yeah and that that can be brilliant for them very interesting very exciting very career enhancing so it's a like all these things it's a balance mm. but it's not all all bad yeah um by any means but but it but it can be it can be very tough mm. but you don't think it achieves benefit for either client or agency i think it's done its t- i think it's done its time yeah i think i think we've now moved to a point where most people leading agencies are pretty experienced business people. Mm-hmm. Um, most people on the client side are pretty experienced business people who know how agencies make money. Mm. I would be disappointed if an agency that I was involved with wasn't able to have a really productive n- negotiation with a client mm. that works for both parties. Mm. I'm not saying it's – there's obviously going to be circumstances where that might not be mm. possible, but I would always hope that that could be done. Mm. You know? Okay. Well, end of procurement, I think, um, and not before time. And not before time. That's quite enough about procurement. <laughs> um, and last up, just wanted to get your comment quickly on all of this. Well, I mean, we talked, Paul um, Holmes and I talked about this um, around a month ago, maybe. Um, the, 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 the frantic rate of acquisitions in the PR agency world. Um, not quite, we're not quite at 2007. 2008 levels, and we're certainly not up at 1999, um, the halcyon era of acquisitions. Uh, but you know, more than 60 last year, and I think some, I think already six this year. As someone who's now chairing an agency that may or may not be looking for an exit, um, what's your view on all of this? It's interesting, isn't it? Because mm. it is noticeable. Yeah. Um, Certainly, I think I, 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 I think my observation would be is is 
I think I was very. I mean, listen to the. I listened to a lot of the interview you did with Paul, and I, I agreed with a lot of it. I, I I think key key point I took out of what he was saying was, there's been a shift from say the 1999 period when it was absolutely about dots on the map, and mm. you know it was all about geography, and certainly my. Old employer Hill and Knowlton, a lot of the WPP agencies bought yeah. like crazy. They did. So a lot of these offices that were put in place that we were just talking about need to be fed by the big global clients were bought during that era and for that reason. Mm. Um, now I think he made the observation that it's a lot of independents that are acquiring. Yeah, which um, is which we haven't seen. Which really. is new. Yeah. Uh, certainly, I would I would say that, and. And maybe I would say this, wouldn't I? Because, you know, I chair an agency that is independent. So, so you know, I have a bit of a bias there. But there is, a, there is just this surge around the independent firms at the moment that, mm. that is new. And, and not just the one I'm involved with, but, but, but a handful of other. And, of course, you know, Blue Rubicon, very well-known independents now uh, being acquired. Twice. Twice, yes, which is quite <laughs> impressive. Um, there is a handful of agencies that have managed that remarkable trick. Yeah, usually it's people. <laughs> you, you know, they've really, you know, you find you hear about these people that have struck the jackpot and sold more than one agency. Yes, that happens lifetime. too. Or, you know, there's Matthew Freud who sold his agency, bought it back, sold it again, and then <laughs> bought it back again. But That's anyway, sorry, I digress. No, no, you, but it's, it's true. I mean, I, I think, you know, that was one of the most high profile independent firms. Mm. Um, and uh, I think that, so I think independence as buyers mm. is very interesting yeah. um, because that, that I think is a relatively new trend. And I, I hope that it is a sign of the growth and strengthening of independently owned agencies yeah. buying other independent agencies, but all still staying independent yeah. for as long as possible. Because one of the one of the challenges of our marketplace, and I suppose like every marketplace, is eventually, and you saw this with Blue Rubicon, we've just seen it with um, Three Monkeys. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Eventually, owners want to, you know, take their money out. Mm-hmm. And, and at that point, they, they need to find somebody to, to buy the business. And Paul also talked about one of the, the problems that some of the big, uh, some of the agencies have found who've been acquired by big networks, it's put them off, mm-hmm. is will they just disappear? Will they become yeah. cookie cutter businesses? And the irony, and he also talked about a lot of these acquisitions don't work very well. And one of the reasons for that is that the, the acquiree, no, acquirer, so say a big network, mm-hmm. actually sort of almost accidentally kind of c- kills the goose that lays the golden egg by standardising everything and in a way yeah. unintentionally taking away the thing that made it so successful to start with, which is the reason why they wanted to pay all those nice multiples yeah. to, to make those owners wealthy, which yeah. is kind of crazy Correct. when you think about it. Yeah, I think the hope is that this, as you said, is a different dynamic because that's, the I think, the classic holding group model you're buying for growth. You're not yeah. necessarily buying for culture or fit or strategic. I mean, they would steam. say all that. but You see, the danger with that is it doesn't mm. always run out of steam, but there's a real risk. Mm. Those independents, those people that build those amazing agencies have often they're very brave people. They have very you know bold views. I mean, when Blue Ribcon started, they were yeah. very, very different. Mm-hmm. You know, and Fraser and the team there were very bold. Um, I mean, I can remember being on a judging panel for them ages ago um, for a PR Week award. Mm. And they were obviously doing very different things then, very yeah. different from the uh, and very impressively so. But they mm-hmm. were brave. Mm. And, um, you know, Angie's been very differentiated in what she's done in the market. And how do you how do you combine both giving those people the ability to realize 
everything they've achieved and monetize that because that's quite natural and why wouldn't you do that mm. with somehow letting them stay special and it's very difficult yeah um maybe she says hopefully if independence by other independents they will they've got a better shot they've got a better shot at it yeah, because maybe. they too feel passionately about that the autonomy to be able to go on doing what they do well. Mm. Um, but scale is, a, is, a, is an enemy of this. Right. The bigger you get, the harder it is yeah. to let these businesses just mm. be themselves and go on being great. Yeah, and also I think, you know, the earnout is 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 pretty evil, right? And it, if, if an earnout is in place, then, you know, you've got businesses that are in being, basically being incentivized to cut costs as far as I can tell, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there's a very classic so. structure. Right. So, I mean, hopefully we will see more, I guess, different types of acquisition models, although there hasn't been much evidence of them. But um, maybe the independents could could look at that, too, because I think the publicly held groups have got a pretty standard acquisition model by this point. I think they have. I mean, you know, I, I was at a dinner recently where we were actually talking about this and there were some private equity people there and some agency, big agency people and some independent agencies. And mm. one of the conversations that we were having a little bit this type of conversation. And in fact, we were talking about that there isn't much innovation mm-hmm. in the acquisition models. Yeah, it's a great and point. And it has some failure built in. And yeah. it's kind of everyone knows that. Some but failure. <laughs> there doesn't seem to be any other way that the, we're bringing to the market. But there must be. That, but there must be. And this right. is what we were talking about. And I think this is an area ripe for innovation because there are a lot of people who um, who get to a certain stage in their organization. And even if they don't want to cash out, they need scale. Yeah. They need to go international or they need new services. And the mm-hmm. barrier to entry to that might be very significant. So they yeah. have to dilute. Mm. Now, if they dilute to private equity, which Blue Rubicon did twice. I keep talking about them. I'm being really nice about them. Yeah. Um, Although they, that's enough plug for well, them. Well, really only once. Well, the once and well, sort of, sort but of. indirectly. Indirectly, um, yeah. Then that brings with it... Um, some considerations of, of it's a very particular type of ownership. Mm. Um, it's usually quite fast, you know, the, the pro, it's very financially driven. Right, it is quick. Um, yeah. It can be very freeing if the management team is experienced and knows what it wants to do with the money and does it quickly mm-hmm. and right. really maximizes that, that kind of opportunity. Um, then you have the, the 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 sort of one we were know and love, where the big network takes over and does the three year run out, and then hopes to goodness that everybody doesn't head for the beach with the, <laughs> with the clients. Yeah, but there must be something in the middle mm-hmm. where you have some sort of mixed model where almost you know there's no way to 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 give management teams some autonomy, some yeah. ability to buy in or whichever way you want to look at it, but not but not incentivizing them to either cut costs or leave. Mm. And I don't know, maybe there are bigger brains than mine that can, can think about that. But yeah, maybe. There hasn't been much change in the model, really, in the last 10 years, no. in the way they're done. might be worth looking at, at how MDC Partners does its acquisitions, because I think they have a slightly different model. And I, I mean, I know they only take 51% mm. to begin with. I'm not sure exactly how they structure it in terms of earnouts. Uh, and even, you know, the most acquisitive agency at the moment, Edelman, it would be interesting to see yeah. how they do theirs. Because I know that uh, stock was certainly part of the part of the deal, but I, I would have imagined they maybe are not so keen to to give away too much stock. Uh, it's it's interesting seeing Edelman being so acquisitive, and and you were talking about this in your interview with Paul, and 
it is true, you know, they, they weren't for a long time. Yeah, um, I, I remember. And when, they now yeah. have become so. And mm-hmm. uh, But, I mean, I agree, you know, they bought great agencies and it does look like they're completing the jigsaw. Mm. It does look strategic. Um, yeah. Filling in pieces they're missing. They didn't have a financial operation really in the UK now. I mean, they did, but it was smaller now. They've added to that. So these things seem quite logical. But, f- I mean, as a as a Euro- ex-European head, how happy would you be with having with having to integrate four acquisitions in a year? <laughs> well, you know, they have a very good <clears throat> uh, European CEO there. I they do, yeah, they do. You know, no, no uh, a disclaimer, they're, 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 um, they're ICANN's agency, so I should put that in as a disclaimer. But oh, they, right, OK. But they are, you know... So um, they're heavily procured. They're <laughs> heavily procured, yes. Um, but th- th- they are... Uh, they're a pretty sophisticated operation, Edelman. They've got mm. a very good financial team, as in financial controllers. Mm. And, but it's really hard. I mean, going back to the MHP experience, I mean, you've got, mm-hmm. I wasn't there when the organization was first formed, but bringing three totally independent, you know, very successful agencies together and forming a new agency, mm. these kinds of, the kind of time and effort that needs to go into making sure the cultural fit is good. Everybody's on the same journey. Mm. They've got integration where you want it and autonomy where you want it yeah. very hard balance to strike yeah so the yeah the management team will have its work cut out indeed well we shall see sally thank you so much we must um do this again and, and hopefully you. not wait another year <laughs> or two until our next podcast we'll be back um soon thank you very much for listening thank you all for listening thanks to marketeers for DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 